Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. There's a man named Morris who died soon after his 70th birthday. Two months later, the family is all sitting around Morris's attorney for the reading of the will. The attorney thanks them all for coming. He reads out the last will and testament. To my beautiful wife, I leave my house, my Manhattan apartment, and $2 million in cash and shares. To my handsome son, Paul, I leave my Lexus and $800,000 in cash. To my gorgeous daughter, Suzanne, I leave my Jaguar and $600,000 in cash. And to my brother Henry, who always told me in no uncertain terms that health is so much more important than wealth, I leave my exercise bike and treadmill. <laughs> now, I don't know if that story actually happened or not. But we understand, right, that, that a last will and testament can't be changed. Henry can't plead for Morris's last will to be changed so that he actually gets some share of the inheritance and the wealth. And conversely, the, the $2 million to Morris's wife can't be annulled. St. Paul gives the example of a last will and testament to show that God's uh, go gospel, the promise of our eternal inheritance, uh, which is why we call it an inheritance, is really God's last will and testament. It's not something that we've earned. It could not be obtained through the law, through our working. Rather, it's something that's been declared to us. And so we need to know two things about this eternal inheritance. Like a will, it is essentially a promise. And our promised inheritance is also, like a will, as it's binding. First, God's covenant or testament he made with Abraham, that St. Paul gives the example of, was a promise. If you don't remember, God promised old Abraham that he and his barren wife, Sarah, would, have a, would, would be the father. He would be the father of a great nation, and he would have a special land given to him. That was a promise specifically to him and the single nation of Israel. But Abraham was also told this, through your offspring... Literally, the, the Hebrew word there is seed. Through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. The fulfillment of that promise rested not on Abraham's many descendants, and he would have many, but rather on the one seed, Christ. So all nations, meaning all people on earth, would be blessed, would receive their inheritance through the one descendant of Abraham, Jesus. The testament made to Abraham was essentially a messianic promise, the promise of a Messiah, of Jesus. So that's the first aspect of this testament, the promise. The second aspect of the testament is that it's binding. It cannot be changed. God's promise that he made with Abraham, the promise of a Savior for him and all nations, was repeated over and over and over and over again. And there were no strings attached. It was a gift. It was a promise. 
And of course, anyone could and many did reject that gift, but that didn't make it any less of a gift. It couldn't be changed. If you think in terms of the last two Sundays we've been looking at law and gospel, the promise is gospel. It's not law. Nothing could change the promise, the gospel. Now, Paul is writing to people in Galatia who have been criticized by what we call Judaizers. Now, you have to know something about the history of, of the, the region there. The Judaizers were uh, people who were saying that, yeah, Jesus came, but God also made all these laws, all, all these ceremonial laws that he gave to Moses, all, all these Levitical laws, laws about circumcision, about eating, about drinking, about sacrifices, about not being like everybody else. If you're going to be a true follower of Jesus, especially because you're not a Jew but a Gentile, if, you, if you're going to be like us Jews, you have to observe these ceremonial laws too, in addition to the promise. So Paul points out that the Judaizers were misapplying the law given to Moses 430 years after Abraham's covenant. They were acting like dishonest heirs who tamper with the inheritance and the condition of a will. In their case, God's original covenant with Abraham. Paul says the law which came into being 430 years after the first covenant, established earlier by God in Christ, does not annul that covenant with the result that invalidates the promise. In other words, the law given to Moses does not overturn the fact that God promised salvation through the gospel. But this misapplication of the law by the Judaizers, of believing that salvation is found in some way because of what we do, is still done and believed today. And I'm not even talking about churches that obviously and explicitly teach salvation by works. Protestant evangelical churches do this too. In fact, Rick Warren, one of the most famous evangelical preachers and authors, who's famous for his, his great works of charity and, and, and many programs and, and things like orphanages and things, has said that, that faith uh, is, is a fruit of works. Faith comes from works. For him, charity and service is the most important thing. It's the gospel. And it's not just him. You can listen to almost any uh, sermon on the radio or on the TV or walk into almost any non-denominational church in the Madison area and hear at the end of a sermon that you could otherwise probably almost hear in a Lutheran church, you can hear this. All you have to do to receive salvation is accept Jesus as your Lord. No. To receive salvation you can't do anything. Relying on our performance, whether it, it's physical, something we do, our works of charity, or mental, something we, we resolve or, or think or, or accept, nullifies God's grace. Law and gospel don't mix. And of course, if we think, like Henry that our work is more important than the wealth God has promised to us, that our work can work us into heaven, then, of course, we're going to get the result of that, the inheritance of that. 
which I can promise you is much worse than the treadmill. It's a misunderstanding of the law to think that we can cooperate with God in gaining our salvation. The theological term for that is synergism, uh, sin with cooperating with God. The expert in the law in, in, in uh, our gospel lesson thought this way too. He, he asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus tells the, the familiar story of the Good Samaritan about the two religious guys that pass by on the side of the road. You know, not really meditating on the context of, of that, we simply think, what jerks, right? What jerks? But did you know those two men were actually following the law? The ceremonial law, which God had given to Moses, the law which the Judaizers were holding up against the Galatians, binds these religious leaders to not touch an unclean person before they go to the temple. So they pass by thinking that they are actually keeping the law, which of course they're not doing because the law, the moral law, also given by God to Moses, demands that they help their neighbor in his need. See the problem? Jesus' point is that the law cannot be followed. If you think you follow it perfectly somewhere, you fail in another area. You cannot love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The law acts like a mirror. That's Paul's next point. The law was added for the purpose of revealing transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The hundreds of regulations God gave to Moses about ceremonies and foods and worship were a constant reminder of how things actually were between the Israelites and God. Every breaking of the law, every neglect of the many ceremonies, every improper use of foods, it all served as a thorough example and reminder of the sinfulness of their, uh, that marred their relationship to a just and holy God. Every bloody sacrifice was a visible reminder that the wages of sin is death and that sinners can be spared only by having a perfect substitute take their place. The law could teach the need for righteousness, but it could not give the required righteousness. The law could not provide salvation. It could only point to the salvation needed from another source. As our opening hymn said, the law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to sight. It reveals the guilt of sin. And then the gospel enters in. The gospel shows us that Jesus has paid for that sin. Jesus has stepped into our place. Jesus is our good Samaritan. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, has been born of a virgin, suffered, crucified, was buried, and then raised again on the third day. Jesus is the one who fulfilled God's promise. I heard just this morning 
that at a recent uh, conference of, of evangelical broadcasters, so a bunch of radio hosts and, and evangelical preachers, the, the people that you would hear on, uh, on radio as you listen to a, the Christian radio station, they were asked, which is more important? If you're going to try to convert someone to Christianity, would you rather tell them about the doctrines of the gospel and of Jesus, or would you rather tell them uh, of your own personal testimony? Overwhelmingly, almost every single person said, personal testimony. And the reason many gave is that because while all, there are all these philosophies and beliefs, no one can change what I've experienced. The gospel becomes my path from being a drug addict to a Christian. My path from poverty to prosperity. My path from depression to happiness. The gospel is about me and my conversion, not Jesus. This is making my testimony more important than the testament of the gospel. And those who said no one can change what I've experienced are, are wrong. Because what happens when someone tells a story? You have to up yours. You have to want up theirs. You have to make yours more dramatic. You have to uh, make yours better, uh, more exciting. So over time, your story, your conversion experience becomes more and more inflated. I think this is what St. Paul would classify as nullifying or adding to the testimony of the gospel. At the end of this chapter in Galatians, Paul says, in fact, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Indeed, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one and the same in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. According to St. Paul, you have received forgiveness and salvation in the most humble way, a way in which you can take absolutely no credit for. You have been adopted as a son of God, worthy of his inheritance, as Paul says, by baptism. How much helpless and unable to do any work could you possibly be than a helpless infant placed under the waters of baptism. Doesn't make for a great conversion story or testimony, but it's not supposed to, because it's a testament, a testament of the gospel. It's a promise. And so how much more so does baptism show God's grace? Doesn't matter your story, your works, whether you are a Jew or a Greek, male or female, slave or free, what matters is what God has done for you in baptism. God has declared you to have a new status. He's clothed you with the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus that covers over all of your filthy acts, even your filthy acts of the most charitable and righteous deeds. 
God has declared to you a new status, the status of son. Baptism is a promise God has made to you. And by faith in that promise, you are Abraham's descendant. You are God's son and an heir according to the promise. And it's this promise that actually frees us. It frees us to do charity, to do good works. We don't have to worry about whether or not our charity or service pleases God because Jesus already has. And, you know, of course, no one will say that the charitable programs done by people like Rick Warren uh, are, are no good and not valuable. They are. They absolutely are. And we should absolutely be involved in works of charity. But we don't do good works because faith comes through our service or our charity. We do good works because, as Luther said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. The gospel, the good news that Jesus is our good Samaritan, frees us to help our neighbor. Because nothing and no one can take your inheritance away. Nothing can invalidate your inheritance. The gospel is God's promise to you. You are an heir of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.